John chapter 1, and this morning we want to give our attention to verses 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, or your joy, may be complete. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now we come. We come as we have gathered as your people to sing your praise, to bring our cares and our petitions to you, to hear your word and to come and to sit at the table that you have provided for us. And so, Father, now as we pause to give attention to your word, we would pray that your spirit would bless this time. And Father, those who need encouragement would find it. And Father, those who uh, need a loving spur of conviction, Lord, would they find that as well. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? Is making the statement, I'm a Christian, like so many other declarations in our day and age, simply a matter of my own choosing? Or is there some sort of objective test by which I can know that I am actually walking in the Jesus way, that I am actually what I profess to be? This is a much harder conversation in our current cultural moment. In fact, even thinking that there might be an external objective test by which one could test the validity of my claim feels, as the kids would say today, aggressive. After all, who are you? Actually, who is anyone to think that they can question Whatever my sovereign self decides is true for me. I was talking with a friend of mine recently. He has for years uh, taught uh, graduate students, but he began his teaching career teaching undergraduates. And the school that he now teaches, there's an undergraduate arm, and, uh, and the professor of the undergraduate class was going to miss the last two weeks of the semester because she was having a baby really not very well planned out, but she was having a baby. And so uh, my friend was on a reduced load and they called and said, hey, since they're actually using the book you wrote in class, would you mind going and sort of covering the last two weeks? And he's like, no, that would be fine. So he walks into class the first day and he's taking attendance and he gets to a young woman's name and she responds to, uh, and he just said, please say if you're here, Uh, she responds by meowing at him. Her sorority sister sitting next to her said, oh, 
Well, today she's identifying as a cat. My friend, being older than I am and having taught for a really long time, laughed at this. The young woman then hissed at him and meowed angrily. That's the kind of world in which we live. And so to say, as my friend said, I'm sorry, you're not a cat. Gets all sorts of anger and vehemence thrown in our way. Well, you can imagine how much more so if you dared to say so to someone, you might not be a Christian. You might not be what you profess to be. And did you know that there is a standard, a standard that is outside of yourself, that is objective, that you need to apply to your own life to determine whether or not what you profess to be true is actually real? Well, the original audience of John's letter was dealing with similar questions, but in very different circumstances. It was hard to be a Christian in the first century. There were pressures from family, from the culture, and financial pressures to walk away from this new Jesus way. It was even harder to watch folks who once professed their lives to following Jesus leave and turn their back not only on their confession of faith, but also on the community of faith. Well, first John is written in order that we may know we are indeed walking in the Jesus way. John gives the church practical and pastoral guidance as we seek to stay in the way of Jesus, no matter how strong the pressures and opposition to that way might be. Now, as we're going to make our way through the book, we're going to see that John gives us three tests. The tests are obedience, love, and truth. There's a test of obedience, a test of love, and a test of truth. And he's going to give us these tests repeatedly, not always in that order, but we're going to see them again and again. Now, if you have your bulletin this morning and you turn to page five, you'll see there's an outline for our time together this morning. And in the outline, there's something called the big idea. And here's the big idea for 1 John 1, 1 to 4. There are fellowship and truth to be found in the way, excuse me, fellowship and joy to be found in the way of truth. There are fellowship and joy to be found in the way of truth. First, then, have you received the truth? Have you received the truth? Now, First uh, John 1, 1 to 4 is a bit of, in the words of Alistair Begg, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. Scholars such as A.T. Robertson and John Stott agree that the first four verses are a bit of a mishmash. In fact, the main verb of the whole thing doesn't actually show up until verse 3, the verb that we proclaim. So it is a bit confusing. John 
does what John normally does when he opens letters. We see it in John chapter 1. He just kind of throws a whole bunch of things out in the open as a way to introduce what he's going to say. And so in verse 1, he's going to tell us about the word of truth, the word of life. Now, that word of life, uh, we can figure out from the context, is Jesus. And the words he uses in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, reminds us immediately of how he starts his gospel in John chapter 1. And it also reminds us of how the entire Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. John wants to tell us about the eternal word of life namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he wants to tell us is not hearsay, but rather what he wants to tell us is that which he has heard, seen, looked upon, and touched with his own hands. In other words, friends, John isn't beginning this letter by telling us his opinion. John isn't beginning this particular letter to Christians by telling us how he feels. No, John is giving us testimony. Now, testimony has gotten kind of a bad rap. Testimony, at least in our day and time, uh, usually has to do with infomercials with somebody trying to sell you a whole drawer full of uh, really cool sounding, but probably not very good knives. And so they're going to cut through uh, an aluminum can that has frozen water in it. When I was a boy, every comic book that I ever read, and I read lots of comic books, had a one-page testimonial in the back from the great Charles Atlas. There was a young man who went to the beach with his girlfriend, and uh, he was scrawny and sickly looking. He got sand literally kicked in his face, and he went home, and he got Charles Atlas bodybuilding program. He goes back in the beach, takes Biff to task, and walks off with the lovely, lovely young lady on his arm. That's what we think when we hear testimony. But that's not how the first century would have thought of testimony. The first century would have thought of testimony as being an eyewitness. John is here giving us evidence much like one would give evidence in a court of law. He wants us to understand that this is truth. Now, in our day and time, immediately when we hear truth, we think fact or we think, can it be scientifically proved? That's not what John is arguing for. John is saying, listen, we heard it. We saw it. We looked upon Jesus Christ. We touched him with our hands. What I'm telling you is not my opinion. What I'm telling you are not my feelings. What I'm telling you is the truth. This is what I saw, and I am not alone. Did you note that? He says, which we have heard. 
which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. In other words, John is reminding us that the entirety of the Christian faith is built upon the apostolic witness, or what we would commonly call the Bible. So let's ask the question that's in the outline. Have you received the truth? Whenever someone gives testimony, we have an option. We can look at it and go, there's no way that really cool sounding knife could cut through an aluminum can with frozen water still inside of it. It's not possible. There's no way in six weeks that guy went from being a scrawny little dude to being buff enough to take Biff to task. There's no way that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Friends, when we are given testimony, we can accept it as true or we can reject it. We can receive it by faith or we can approach it with the eyes of skeptic. Right away, John wants us to know he is giving eyewitness testimony to that which is true. But do we believe him? Are we a skeptic? Or, as we will see, are we part of those who are in the fellowship and have found our joy? Secondly, then, we need to cling to eternal truth. We need to cling to eternal truth. Right away, verse 2, John gives us an aside. He gives us a parenthesis. It's sort of like he does in John chapter 1, verse 6. You may recall the first five verses of John 1. He's telling us about the Word who was with God. The Word was God and it was with God. And, and then all of a sudden in John chapter 1, verse 6, he goes, oh yeah, and there was a man sent from God named John. And you're going, wait a minute. You were telling me about this word, and now you break in and tell me about John. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm getting whiplash here. What's, what's going on? Well, he now turns his attention and again wants to let us know that the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is a fact. There really was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. There really was a man who did all of the things that the Bible purports that Jesus did. And John, again, is letting us know that there's apostolic witness to that fact. Again, look at verse 2. We have seen it, we testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life who was with or which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is not John's personal opinion. This is not John's personal feelings. This is not John uh, getting on his Instagram page and ranting. No, this is, again, is John saying, listen, this is what we saw. We're going to testify to it and we're going to proclaim this. We want to tell you about Jesus. We don't want to tell you about life in the Roman Empire. We don't want to tell you about how our taxes are too high. We don't want to comment on what Caesar tweeted or didn't tweet the day before. 
No, John makes it clear that the apostolic message is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of life who has come into the world and they saw it, they're testifying to it. That's what they are proclaiming. Why? Because that's where life is. He was with the Father and has been made manifest to us. And there I hope we hear the echoes of Psalm 2, the text that Jenny read for us this morning. When the nations and the kings of the earth are in rebellion against God, what does God do? He puts his king on his holy hill. You see, the sending of God's Son into the world is an act of redemption, but it's also an act of judgment. That is what we testify to. That is what we proclaim. At least it should be what we proclaim. It's easy to get off message, isn't it? It's easy to talk about various cares and concerns. It's easy to talk about whatever is happening in the world. It's easy to lament the moral decay and slide of our culture. Those things are true. But friends, the apostolic witness is that our message is Jesus. Lots of folks could vote the way we vote. Lots of folks could think the way we think. Lots of folks could, as uh, all good, decent people ought to do, cheer for Nebraska each and every Saturday. But that would not mean that they have the eternal life that the apostles proclaim. No, our message, if we will stick to it, is Jesus it's what John and the apostles proclaimed, and it's the message that we ought to proclaim as well. Thirdly, we can find fellowship and joy. We can find fellowship and joy. Again, John wants us to understand, hey, this is not a rant. He's not giving us his feelings. This is not John being fully caffeinated or under-caffeinated. Again, look how verse 3 begins. That which we have seen and heard, we're going to proclaim also to you. Okay, John, you've been an eyewitness to this. We get it. You're not making this up. This is not merely your opinion. You are giving evidence. But to what end? You're proclaiming to us the word of life. You're proclaiming Jesus to us but to what end? Look at verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us. The goal of this testimony, the goal of the apostolic proclamation, is fellowship. You're saying, well, okay, that's not really earth shattering. Listen to the words of John Stott. John Stott says, the goal of apostolic preaching is not salvation of the individual, but fellowship. The goal of apostolic preaching is not salvation of the individual, but fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. 
Now, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of fellowship? The Greek word is one that's probably well known to us. It's the word koinonia. Well, koinonia is not a fancy Greek word for potluck dinners. Koinonia is not a fancy uh, term to describe sitting with your friends and having coffee. Rather, koinonia is a deep and abiding participation in the life of God and his people. Let me say that again. It's a deep and abiding participation in the life of God and his people. Which means then that what John is inviting us to is not this thing that you claim to have and put in your pocket and then go on your merry way. John is offering us, he's calling us, he's proclaiming to us that we can have a deep and abiding participation in the life of the triune God and in the life of his people. So he's not saying, hey, I'm going to give you these three tests so that you can know that your get-out-of-hell-free card is still in your pocket. He's not proclaiming to them, hey, here's the deal, I'm going to give you these three tests so that you can be sure that you and Jesus are good because you know what, you really don't need God's people. You don't need the church. And furthermore, it changes the question that oftentimes we associate with 1 John. We talk about how 1 John gives us assurance of salvation. But the question that John wants to ask us isn't, are you saved? No, the question that John is asking us is this, do you have fellowship with God and his people? That's a very different question. Do I have a deep and abiding participation in the life of the triune God and the life of his people? Because if you do, then in verse 4, tied to these apostolic writings, and by the way, there's, there's, uh, you have a note in your Bible probably, it's either our joy, it could also be your joy, and it's kind of 50-50, so it's uh, sort of, you know, flip a coin and decide which one it is. But either way, John makes it clear. Listen, if you're walking in the truth, if you have a deep and abiding participation in the life of God and his people, then John is saying, listen, as a pastor, that brings me great joy. And understand that if you are participating in the life of God and the life of God's people, there should be joy that accompanies that as well. So either way, John is saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to proclaim these things to you. I'm going to proclaim them to you because I want you to have fellowship. Because if you're in fellowship with the triune God and with his people, there is joy. So let me ask you this morning, how much joy is in your life? I don't mean, are you one of those silly, happy morning people? We have them in our house. I married one of them. No, 
I mean, can you, in spite of the circumstances in your life, do you have an awareness of a deep and abiding participation in the life of God and with his people? It's not about our salvation. It's about fellowship. And in that fellowship, there is joy. So how's your fellowship? And how's your joy? In a few moments, we're going to celebrate together the Lord's table. And the table reminds us that what John's been telling us is actually true. That the second person of the Trinity did indeed come to earth. He was made manifest. That he was born of a virgin. That he suffered, was crucified, he died. And the third day, God the Father resurrected God the Son in power. Friends, the table reminds us that it is that confession that is the basis of our fellowship. It's not just because we all live in the same place. It's not because we all cheer for the same team. It's not because we all like the same things or because we all vote the same way. No, at the center of our fellowship is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the basis. And as we're going to see, when Jesus is the basis of our fellowship, not only are we made right with God, but we can also have fellowship then with one another. And so we come to the table this morning as God's people. We come to the table not as those who are going to walk around, as we're going to see next week, and go, hey, I, I don't have any sin. No, we come as those who say, I've sinned, but guess what? I have a propitiation. It's a fancy $3 word. We're going to learn what it means next week. There's nothing good in me. Rather, there is good in Christ and God is faithful. So we come. We gather. We have fellowship with God and with his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your graciousness to us. Thank you that uh, when we read the Gospels and when we read the New Testament, Father, we're not looking at folklore. We're not looking at myth. But we're looking at the eyewitness testimony of your people, people who were there. They saw, they heard, they touched. And now for our benefit, so that we can have fellowship with you and with one another, for our benefit, they have written these things down. And Lord, in that fellowship, in that fellowship with you and in that fellowship with one another, there's joy. And so Lord, as we come now to celebrate the table, we bless you. We thank you both that it is a reminder, but also, Father, that at the table you invite us to come and to partake of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray these things.
Amen.